Well, let me ask a question as I begin here. How many of you would, would say you're one of those type that love to read reviews before you do something or purchase something? Anyone here? All right, the hands are up. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you love to review things. My wife makes fun of me about this. She jokes around because uh, usually before I purchase any electronics, most definitely, but anything else, I've read about it. I've probably looked for the manual. I want to read. I want to understand it. Before I get there, I get to the store, if I'm going to a store, and I'll tell the salesperson what it does before they do to me. I want to know, I want to understand what it does, how, if it's beneficial, and what I'm using that item for, or if it's worth getting. I want to read reviews as much as possible. Um, how many of you are that way with movies or books? You know, before you spend time in that, you think, I want to read, I want to find out, maybe not what it's all about, but is it any good? Is it worth my time? You know, for me personally, besides electronics and different things, if I'm going to stay at a hotel, I'm going to a website and I want to read lots of reviews. I want to find out about that hotel and what people thought when they stayed there. I want to understand what someone's vantage point of it was. Maybe also at your house, you have work that needs to be done and you found out you had a leaky roof after years, right, Donna? What do you do? You, you, do you go to Google and think, I'm going to find the first person that I can find and just call them and have them come do the work? usually not. You want to read reviews or ask people, right? And usually at this point in our culture, in the, in the social mindset, where do we go to find out where we need to have work done? Who do we talk to? We go on the Facebook, as people call it, right? The Facebook, not really, but Facebook. And this is this week on my Facebook, okay? And this isn't just with work, but someone put on, on one of my friends, and maybe you're here, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but they, a woman wrote, I'm in need of new dinner ideas that are quick and healthy, she wants to find out, right? She's, she's surveying of sorts. She wants a review in that way of, give me some ideas. Or, or maybe your car broke down, and so you want to find out who, who's a good mechanic, that someone you can trust, you know, that you can bring in your car. And, and all of that to say is word-of-mouth advertisement, right? We, we, our culture uh, depends on that for, for a number of areas. We're, we're looking for something and before we decide on that line, we want to know we're making a good decision, so we go and find reviews. We want to talk to someone else, or we, we've heard from someone else, so therefore we go to them to, to find out. We, we want to trust that what we're making a decision about is, is the right decision. You know, so we're, all, we're pursuing something. We're searching for something because we all need help in that. So whether it's a new item or a new way of doing things, we, we search, we, we look and trying to find the answers so that we can feel rest assured that this is the right way. We're searching for direction, for purpose, for meaning, not only in those temporary things, but for things outside of that. We're, we're searchers. God built us that way. And so when you come to John, John chapter 1, and if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. We, we started the book of John. We're starting it now. I've been in it for a few weeks. We come to this passage in John 1, verses 35 through 51, where we have four men that are searching. That They're looking for something, for someone, actually. We have... Andrew, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at the pursuit of these four men and what they're looking for. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1 and follow with me. I'm going to read these verses. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. They're, they're behind me on the screen. John's writing, The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You, should be called, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I see to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Before we get into the text here, join me in prayer. Father, what a, a privilege it is to come together as the body of Christ to look into your word. God, we ask that you would teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us in the study of your word. Help us understand. Help us apply what it says. God, I ask that we would come away changed this morning as a result of meeting with you. Help us to, to see the impact of your ministry in the lives of these four men this morning. Help us to be uh, encouraged to go from this place and to be zealous to share the gospel that we have believed, that we are believing, and that others would come to know you. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. A real simple outline this morning. It's really just the two different break points in the passage of the recruitments of, of Andrew and Simon and the second one of Philip and Nathaniel. So the first one is the recruitment of Andrew and Simon. And as I read in those verses, the beginning of this passage in verse 35, it's, it's John the Baptist is still in the scene at the end of this uh, section and he's standing there and his two disciples, the two men that are following him in ministry are with him and and what happens? Well, Jesus walks by, walks right in front of them, and, and he responds, John the Baptist does. We looked at John last week as he, he came into the scene, and if you remember, his primary job in ministry was, was to point people to the Messiah. If you remember last week, John the Baptist is the microphone in the hands of God. He's not the message. No, he's, he's there to proclaim the message. And he again points himself away from Jesus by, by saying to these two men with him, that this is the Messiah, and, and being able to actually point to him, seeing him, flesh and blood walk by and saying he's, you know, that he's the lamb, that he would take away the sins of the world. Andrew McLaren writes about this. He says, it's, 
It was a great historical moment when the last of the prophets stood face to face with the fulfillment of all prophecy. And Jewish prophecy sang its swan song, uttered its last rejoicing, Eureka, I have found him. What an amazing sight. The last prophet and all the years of prophecy is standing there face to face with Jesus and can say, he is the Lamb of God. Now, the significance of that statement would, would revolutionize the world from that point in, into our day now. The sin problem in our world was going to be dealt with. And it, and it wasn't a new system that God was introducing. And it wasn't a, a new plan that God was hatching. No, it was a person that was coming that would deal with sin. And it was God's own son who would come down to bear the weight of our sin upon his back. And he would be the lamb that would go to the slaughter to pay for our sins once and for all. And so John's standing there. He's ministering to the people. He's preaching. He's sharing the good news. He's pointing their, their hearts and their minds to say, there is one yet to come. And here comes Jesus walking right in front of them. And he can literally point to him and say, this one right here. Look, this is Jesus. He says he looked at Jesus, which means he looked straight at him. He fixed his eyes on him. He's, his eyes are glued to his Savior. And he realizes in that moment that everything sad is coming untrue. That Jesus has come. There's hope for the world. And he says, and he shouts literally, behold, the Lamb of God. He's saying, look, the Lamb of God is right here. And in those moments, John is preaching a message of deliverance, of, of real life. And I want our church to be known in this way. I want our church to be preachers in this regard, to go out and to share this message in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And for, for those of you who don't know, I, I have four kids, four young kids at home. So that's where I'm living right now. I have an infant that's four weeks old and I have a 10-year-old. And we're in the whole mix of what it is to raise kids. And I love it. It's a lot of work. But I need to remind it again this week, and I want to encourage you parents that are here this morning, that that the gospel, this, this proclamation needs to be on the tip of your tongue on a regular basis in your homes. Parents, your job is not to produce perfect kids because it can't happen. Your kids will not be perfect. You should be quick to say to your kids, look, look at Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away your sins. He came to bring you real life. He came to remove your shame, to remove your guilt, to remove the weight of sin. But parents, if, if you discipline your kids, and I hope you do, come back with the gospel every time and point them to the Savior. Rehearse again. Walk through it with them to say, this is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who came to die for your sins. He is the Lamb who was killed for them. You want to revolutionize parenting? Stop dwelling just on the sin of your kids and look to the lamb and, and tell them. Continually to point your kids back to Christ. Your job as a parent is to prepare your kids for eternity, not just preparing them to leave the house. So rejoice with your kids about the gospel. Talk about the gospel. Make sure that that's talked about a lot in your home. And remember, we're in this together. I'm still parenting kids will be for a while. We're in this together. So I was a tangent. I'm going to keep going here. John sees Jesus, though, okay? John the Baptist, and, and he points to his disciples. These guys that have signed up to follow this ministry, they want to know more. And so he says literally to them, hey, guys, you've been traded. 
All right, you're, you're no longer with me now. Follow him. This is the lamb. This is the savior. You know, this is incredibly, incredibly important in this culture. One commentator wrote, to recommend disciples to a greater teacher was rare and required great humility and denoted confidence in the other teacher's superiority. And he's saying in this moment, Jesus is more superior than me. Follow him. And what is the response in verse 37? The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. You know, they're looking for something in their life. They've, they've heard about it. They've, they've heard the message. They've heard the prophecy. They've read the Old Testament. They're now putting the pieces back together and they're, they're seeking. And when John the Baptist again proclaims that this is Jesus, this is the one who saved them, who redeemed them, they, they turn and follow him. You know, this is a point of curiosity, but also the work of God working in their lives. And they want to know more. They're looking for answers. They want to spend more time with him. In verse 38, this is what happens. And so Jesus turned and saw them the following. Have you ever been followed before? It felt like it. You turn around, and you're kind of like, I feel like someone's just right there. This is Jesus continuing on. And those two guys are right there. And Jesus, what does he do? He turns and says, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? This is significant. This is, the, this is the first words of Jesus in John's gospel. And they are, where are, what are you seeking, he says. What are you looking for? What are you searching for? And Jesus wastes no, no time whatsoever here with these two men. He cuts to the chase. He asks the question. And what a soul-penetrating question it is. So guys, what are you looking for? What's missing in your life? Now, Jesus isn't asking because he's ignorant. He's curious. He's doing a survey of, of sorts. Well, he's God. He knows he's asking for their benefit. What are you looking for? Are you looking for fame? Are you looking for riches? Are you looking for power? What are you searching for? This is the question that needs to be asked today of those that are, that are looking and asking questions about the gospel, about God. What are you looking for? Are you, are you seeking to escape hardships? Are you thinking if I have Jesus, life would be a breeze? Are they seeking protection from trials of life? Maybe they're seeking a complete removal of trials because maybe if I'm a Christian, then everything goes great. People coming to find out about this Jesus, to find out about God. Unfortunately, there are many in our culture that are coming to find out. They want to ask answers because they want to gain financial wealth. There's a large population in our country and throughout the world that are being fed a lie that being a Christian means you're rich, that you have the financial security. But coming to Christ, you do get security, but it's not in finances and it's not in anything in this world. It's in Christ. It's in the life to come. So I ask, what are you seeking? Jesus asks, do you, do you merely want the benefits that come from playing church, with dabbling with religion, or do you want to follow him? Are you seeking a better life now or a new life? Charles Spurgeon expands on these questions and expands on the blessings of following Jesus. And he writes, are you seeking pardon? You shall find it in me. Are you seeking peace? I will give you rest. Are you seeking purity? I will take away your sin. A new heart I will give you and a right spirit will I put within you. What are you seeking? Some solid resting place for your soul upon earth and a glorious hope for yourself in heaven? 
Whatever you seek, it is here. Folks, it's in Jesus. We're, we're all looking for something. You're pursuing something. And he says it begins with Jesus. Real life be, begins in him. And Jesus asked the question of these two, two disciples, and he states one's Andrew, and the other, he doesn't give any explanation. Can you guess who it is? It's John, actually. It's the author of his gospel. He doesn't name himself, but it's John. And, and so he asks this question, what are you seeking? And what are their response? Their response are, Rabbi, where are you staying? What an odd response. You know, John, John readers, I, I like this in, in the version he, he wants to, the primarily to the readers are the Gentiles, and so he wants them to understand this title, rabbi. And so he explains it in the translation here, in the, in the original Greek, he says it's teacher. And, and, and in this, they're showing respect to Jesus, and frankly, they want to hear all that he has to say. They don't want this day to end. Have you ever felt that way in a conversation with someone, where you're talking, you're conversing, you go back and forth, and it seems like hours are passing, and you just all of a sudden, after a few hours, think, wow, Time just flew by. Well, I'm sure in some aspect, they're talking and, and all of a sudden realizing as they're outside, boy, it's getting late. The sun is beginning to set. And practically, they needed to find lodging. So Jesus responds in verse 39. He says, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. You know, these men wanted uninterrupted conversation time with the saviors. So they ask where he's staying. They're looking for answers. And when John writes that it was about the 10th hour, he's saying that it was about 4 p.m. In the, in the Palestine custom, the day began at 6 a.m. and would go for 12 hours. And so 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., sunrise to sunset. So if I'm doing my math correctly, and I had to check this because I didn't have math in Bible college, 10 hours from there is 4 p.m., so it's getting close to the end of the day for them. The sun is going to set. And so the people really at that point in the outdoor activities are shutting down and getting ready to go inside. So by asking the question where you're staying, they're not asking Jesus, so what hotel are you at? Does it have a pool? Is the bed comfortable? You know, they're not asking those questions. They're not seeking like us reviews to see if it's a good place to stay. No, they're asking because time's, time's going away. I want to talk more. Can we go with you to talk? We want to know you. They're pursuing Jesus. They want to get answers. And they see the one right before them now that can give them the answers. And I love Jesus' response to them. He says, come and you will see. Come and you will see. He's, he's saying, come and, and I want you to come. And, and you will find out. They've been looking for something, pursuing something. And now there's Jesus on the scene. They've heard about him. They've been taught. They've, they've heard and they believe to a certain extent they want to know more. And now all of this, all this confusion is melting away as they see Jesus before them. It's beginning to make more sense and they want to talk to him. And the question that I have to ask is, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a little magic, a little miracle in your life to make the problems go away? Are you looking for comfort for your pain so that you can continue to live the life the way you want to? Are you looking for the right path so that you can advance in this world even at the cost of others? Are you looking for endless blessings without the demands of faithfulness and discipleship with Christ? 
Jesus asks, come and see. Jesus is more than a man. Folks, he's your rescuer. So Andrew understands this. And he's believing and so he acts. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrews, Simon Peter's brother. And get this. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew, after spending the day with Jesus, probably talking and listening and becoming incredibly impressed with what he's hearing because it's all making sense of what he's heard, what does he do now? Well, he goes out. And the first thing, John says in verse 41, he first, before doing anything else, he goes and finds his brother. What, what I see from that when I, when I look at that passage is that he automatically assumes the responsibility of telling someone else. It was automatic. We were not informed of, of whether Jesus instructed them to go and find their brothers. We don't, we don't know that. John is the author. He was there. John probably would have explained in great detail because he's very detail-oriented, but he doesn't. All he says is that at the end, Andrew goes and finds his brother. They didn't get a, a seminar, a lecture about going to find their loved ones to bring them to Jesus. They just react. This is the one. And what does he want to do? His heart stirred so much, he wants to go share with his brother. We have found the Messiah. There's no guilt trip for his brother. There's no condemnation to encourage him and to twist his arm. He just says, we found him. And it's pure joy from Andrew. He, he wants to do it. And in my experience, I come to find out that, that most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon in a crowded church or, or a large event where the gospel is proclaimed. The large majority of people who come to Christ come because of the influence and the encouragement of an individual. It's usually the testimony of a coworker, a neighbor, or a brother and sister, a mom and dad, or a friend that causes people to consider Christ. I came across in my study a great story about Moody, D.L. Moody, from John MacArthur's book, The Twelve Ordinary Men, and I want to read it for you. It says, few have ever heard of Edward Kimball. His name is a footnote in the annals of church history, but he was the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. He went one afternoon to Boston Shoe Store where the 19-year-old Moody was working and cornered him in the stockroom and introduced him to Christ. Kimball was the direct opposite of the bold evangelist. He was a timid, soft-spoken man. He went to that shop frightened, trembling, and unsure of whether he had enough courage to confront this young man with the gospel. At the time, Moody was crude and illiterate, but the thought of speaking to him about Christ had Kimball trembling in his boots. Kimball recalled the incident years later. Moody had begun to attend his Sunday school class, and it was obvious that Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible and about Christ. And Kimball said, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. And I started down downtown to Holston Shoe Store. And when I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought then maybe my mission might embarrass the boy that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, they might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make him a good boy. And when I was pondering all these things, I passed by the store without even noticing. And then when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it. Yet God brought me back. Kimball found Moody working in the stockroom, wrapping and shelving shoes. 
And Kimball said and, and spoke with limping words. He later said, I never could remember just what I said. Something about Christ, something about his love, that was all. He admitted it was a weak appeal. But Moody then and there gave his heart to Christ. If you're not sure, D.L. Moody was used mightily of God, he continues, as an evangelist both in America and in England. And his ministry has made a massive impact on both sides of the Atlantic, spanning most of the second half of the 19th century. Tens of thousands of people testified that they came to Christ because of the ministry of D.L. Moody. Among Moody's converts were people like C.T. Studd, the great pioneer missionary, and Wilbur Chapman, another evangelist. And Moody subsequently founded Moody Bible Institute, a Bible college where thousands of missionaries and evangelists and other Christian workers have been trained during the past century and sent out into our world. All of that began when one man who was faithful to introduce another individual to Christ. Folks, this is a Sunday school teacher. A man that said, I'm going to teach and I'm going to be faithful. And this kid's in my class and I need to go talk to him. He probably didn't have all the training that he needed. He probably didn't have all the right words, as his own testimony stated. But he went. He lived out his faith outside of the walls of the church. Now, there's no question that the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is individual sharing. People are the method that God uses in evangelism. So I want to ask, I asked this in the first service, how many of you here this morning, by a raise of hand, you came to Christ because someone shared with you individually? These, these people, you, you hear because other people decided to share. You know, I'm not going to say that gospel tracts are bad, but I will say, without any doubt, that gospel tracts will never, ever outlast people. They're not as powerful as people. And Andrew is the gospel tract to his brother Simon. And as you read, you automatically, you get it. You know he assumes the responsibility. He has been changed by what God has done and who he is, and he goes and tells his brother. Have you ever reflected on remembering who told you the gospel? Maybe it was a number of people in your life. I reflected about that this week when I was studying, and it was my mom. I grew up in a Christian home, although my father was not saved, and my mom shared the gospel with me a lot, talked about the gospel a lot. And I remember very clearly when I was nine-year-old asking my mom for more details to walk me through this. How about you? Who shared Christ with you? Have you ever gone back to them? I thought about this too. Have you ever gone back to them and said thank you? I thought about that, and so I called my mom on Friday and just said, Mom, thanks. Thanks for being faithful. Thank you. And I said, I said to my mom, thank you for your persistence in sharing the gospel with a rotten kid <laughs> who liked to disobey and do what he wanted. I'm standing here as a testimony of my mom's faithfulness. So remember who shared with you, but then, but then don't just stay there. Go like Andrew and tell others. Well, Andrew not only told his brother here in this verse, he does something in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter is translated from Petros, which, which means rock. 
which will come into clearer view as we go through the Gospel of John. But, but Jesus is particular. He's not just pulling hats out of, out of the air like, oh, that sounds great. No, he's very particular about, about Simon. And it's very significant for the reason and the name that he chose. It's, it's said about Simon by his very nature that he was an energetic yet unreliable person who would jump into action only to jump back out of action when he couldn't follow through. Peter would be the type of person that quickly signed up for a task and then bails halfway through. He lacked follow through. And it seems to us outside of the mind of God that Jesus chooses this nickname to be a consistent reminder to him of who he should be. And, and, and he's saying, you're the rock. Be consistent, be faithful. What a reminder that would have been to him throughout his life. And, and, and notice also that Jesus is forceful here. He doesn't ask for Simon's permission. Can I call you Peter? He just says, you're Peter. And, and to me, that's significant because Jesus is saying, I have authority and I have power to do this. I'm God. He just does it. And before you know it, at this point, there's three that are following Jesus. The second recruitment is of Philip and Nathaniel. And so the ministry is beginning and Jesus leaves and decides to go to Galilee, it says in verse 43. And then that he says, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. You know, this is not a chance stumbling. No, Jesus is very, he's very direct and he's going to Galilee to find them. Going to share. And Jesus' decision to travel to Galilee about 100 miles north isn't as abrupt as we read it in our text. You know, what John is doing for us, when John's writing the gospel, is that he's bringing us into the theater of, of his gospel and showing us the characters and who they will be. And he's moving from one frame to the next frame, from one snapshot to the next snapshot, to this character to that character, to, to show us these are the people that I'm going to fill my gospel with to explain what happened. And so don't, don't read any more about the decision of Philip as just by happen chance or out of the blue. No, he's, he's bringing them into the story so we can understand who he is. And it doesn't say that it's a long conversation. You know, did Philip have a lot of questions for Jesus? We don't know. All we know is that, that Philip here follows the same pattern as before. Jesus calls him, says, follow me. And what does he do? He follows. You know, in the gospels. And, I, and I'll occasionally go back and forth to compare them. But we can get kind of confused and misguided by different gospels and understanding of the calling of disciples. But Matthew 4 is one in particular Matthew 4, 18 through 22, and this is what Matthew writes of the calling of the disciples. And I believe this to be later, but I'll explain. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting it into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat was Zebedee, their father. Many their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. You know, in that, uh, I said after, I believe it's uh, uh, the, the timing of these two are very significant. But Jesus, at this point, is, is explaining to them who he is. The disciples have already heard bits and pieces about it. But this is that final sales pitch. Not really a sales pitch, actually, at all. It's a calling, and they obey. In fact, it doesn't follow very well at all of our culture's understanding of how we should do it, right? Shouldn't we sing... 10 stanzas of just as I am so people can come forward. 
He doesn't do that. We don't read that at all. He calls them and they follow. And can you imagine the scene there at the water? You know, these fishermen are, are working. They're not sitting on a stone with the fishing pole, just casting. It's not a hobby for them at this point. No, this is work. And by all accounts, they, they know Jesus. And so they know the rescuer is coming and they hear John the Baptist preach. And now he's standing at the shoreline calling them to follow him. As I said earlier, I grew up in a Christian home and um, listened to Christian music when I was a kid. And one of my favorites was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Anyone ever heard of his music? That dates me a little bit. But one of his albums was For the Sake of the Call. It was recorded in 1990. I was 13 years old. But that album had a great impact on me. And one of the songs is the, the lead, the, that main song. And it talks about the, the disciples, essentially, being called by Jesus. And he has this phrase in there in the song about the fact that no one would stand and applaud them. I mean, they're, they're working. They're fishermen. And this is significant for them to leave where they're at. But it's not like they did it for applause. They didn't do it to be recognized. The disciples do it in obedience of who Jesus is and what he says. And, and they would sacrifice their livelihood to go follow him. They would abandon their posts. I can imagine people being around there, maybe even the father, frustrated. Where are you guys going? Seriously, you're leaving all the work for us now. Where are you going? But for them, they weren't following a vision. They weren't following a plan or some sort of nebulous purpose. They're following a person. They see Jesus and they follow him. And Philip, the same way, coming back to our passage, Philip's there and he follows and as Philip hears the call to follow Christ in verse 44, his net, next natural reaction to this is to go and tell someone else. We see it again, friend going after friend. You know, it's the same, we had, we had a birthday party yesterday for Madeline, and when you're lighting a candle, a cake, sometimes you, you light one candle, and what do you do? You take that one candle and light the next, and see that trail? This is what it's happening here in the gospel. One hears, understands, and what do they do? They go to the next they want to share now the hope that they have, that he's here. And this is the pattern, the pattern in scripture. And the, and the gospel is best proclaimed by word of mouth. And as I said before, that's the, that's the best mode of advertisement, right? I mean, you hear it all the time in our culture, word of mouth. If, you're a bit, if you have a business here this morning, right? The best business is when someone else says, I heard about you and I want the, to come and have you do work or whatever it is. You know, a Nielsen study, I looked this up because I was curious this week, says that 84%, 84% of consumers say they either completely or somewhat trust recommendations from family, colleagues, and friends about products, making these recommendations the information source ranked highest for trustworthiness. Here's another one. This one's significant for our culture. The millennials, all right? These are the, the generation just right after me, 1980 to 2000. They're ranked, they ranked word of mouth as the number one influencer in their purchasing decisions about clothes, packaged goods, big ticket items like travel and electronics and financial products. Baby boomers also ranked word of mouth as being most influential in their purchasing decisions about big ticket items and financial products. So all that to say, folks, is that's the culture in which we live. That's what our culture knows and understands. That's what they do. 
just talking to someone this morning that, that sells cars, and he says that 70% of his business is because someone said, hey, go talk to him. 70%. He says he sells cars to only 3% of people that just come off the street. It's by word of mouth. We trust someone else, and you want to go find out. Now, I'm not bringing all this to show you I can research well, okay? That's not why I'm doing this. I'm just saying word of mouth advertising has been around for a long time, even before Jesus. And how does Jesus utilize ministry at this point? What is happening? What is God doing? It's word of mouth. It's Andrew understanding his need for a savior and going to find someone. It's Philip doing the same way. Uh, that's what we're going to do here. That's what I'm going to encourage from the pulpit here at Edgewood Bible Church. We will, I know we will utilize other mediums. We have a website. We have a sign. We have other things. But, but folks, the best tool for the proclamation of the gospel is you and me. That is the best way for the gospel to get out. You know, and, and I want you to remember that. I want you to, to understand that and believe that and do that because we, we understand it in other ways, right? When you find a dentist that you really enjoy and it's a good price, you go and tell everyone. When your car's been fixed, what do you do? You want other ones to know. Well, folks, your life has been changed if you're a Christian. You have new life. Shouldn't that motivate us to go and share a response of what he's done for us and who he is? The gospel is much better news than where we had our car serviced. And we should be excited to share that. We should look to share with others. And that's what Philip does here. And Philip goes and he says to his friend Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what's Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, seriously? I know that town. And what does Philip say? He doesn't get, and I love this, because Philip doesn't get caught up with an argument over things that really don't matter. What does he say? Come and see. He, he doesn't waste any time with debating towns of Nazareth. And, well, I know that person. He's a good guy. No, he's saying, you want to know Jesus? Come and see. And it's an invitation there again. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You know, I think, as I said earlier, Nathaniel's response to, to, to Nazareth shows where his loyalties lied. His, re, his response shows his disdain for that town. Just as Judeans looked down on Galileans in general, so also did the rest of the Galileans look down on the, on the inhabitants of Nazareth. And so since Nathaniel's hometown of Cana was about 10 miles north of Nazareth, his disdain may also reflect the local rivalry between the two towns. He's not impressed. Oh, he's from Nazareth? Well. But before Philip allows him to get any longer in this discussion, you know, he takes him and says, come and see for yourself. You know, this is the purest form of evangelism. Come and see. You have questions about Christianity? You have questions about the Bible? Come and see. Bring your questions to the word and you will have answers. 
And so Jesus, now seeing Nathanael come towards him, speaks to him, speaks of him. He, he knows Nathanael. He knows you. And he shows it to him. Jesus sees Nathanael. He knows him as a good and honest man. And then Nathanael surprised about how he's talking about him and, and responds in that way. And Jesus says, I, I saw you. Even before Philip came and found you, I saw you. Jesus' words to Nathanael shows us that when we think that we have found Jesus, in reality, he found us. One commentator wrote this, and I found it helpful. He said, Jesus finds Philip. Philip, in turn, finds Nathanael and reports Nathanael, we have found him. But it's intriguing to ask the very simple question concerning these stories, who really finds whom? Christians have frequently been known to say that they found Christ or found faith as Andrew and Philip reported, but maybe Jesus' perspective in these stories could beneficially alter such self-centered view of salvation. It was not Jesus who was lost. It was us. Jesus most definitely isn't lost. But we were once. Nathaniel too. And so Jesus again displays his power. He shows him that, that he's more than just a man. He, he knew him. He saw him. I can only, John doesn't tell us, but I can only, only imagine him describing the scene to Nathaniel. Yeah, I saw you under that fig tree. And describing the, the, what was happening that, in that moment. And Nathaniel, his response isn't of question. It's not of, well, really. No, his response is of belief. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He believes in Jesus. And remember, this is the, this is the pursuit throughout the book, right? It's back here on the slide. Do you see the verse up there? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the point. That is where John is driving throughout his gospel, that they would believe. And what's Nathaniel's response? You are the Son of God. He understands it. He believes it. And Nathaniel even uses the, the messianic title. He says he's the king of Israel. He believes and then Jesus' response to Nathaniel's confession is, is, this is, this is vintage Jesus, okay? He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Oh yeah, Nathaniel? You, you, this is just the beginning. You haven't seen anything yet. He says, truly, truly, which means I'm telling you the truth. You can take it to the bank. And he's stating for us that there is more in store. There's more things yet to come. You haven't seen anything yet. It's only the beginning. And Jesus will again and again display power and perform miracles and direct people to the fact that, that God has come down to earth to dwell as a man. Even the next week, as we get into chapter two, Jesus again is going to do a marvelous miracle here at this wedding. And when Jesus mentions here at the end of this, in verse 51, about the heavens open up, he's, he's probably alluding to Jacob's dream from Genesis 28, where he saw angels uh, ascending and descending from heaven on a ladder. And I believe the point of his statement is that Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. And he has come down from above to reveal truth to us as humans. So what can we learn from this passage? What, what can we take away here this morning? Well, the first thing that's repeated a couple times is this statement. 
Come and see. Come and see. Come and see who Jesus really is. And we're, we are called to follow him as the Christ. And this call is to each and every one of us. It's not enough that our parents decided to follow Christ and respond to that. It's, it's our time to follow Christ. You and me. And maybe you're here and you've heard the gospel. You've heard of it. You've heard of Jesus, but you're not quite sure who it is and what he means and how it fits in. Well, this is the time to come and to see, to come sit down and, and talk through and ask questions. Today is the day to ask those questions. Today is the day to find out the answers that you've been seeking. And I encourage you, don't let this day pass without talking to someone. That's why I, I stand. That's why I serve in this church. I want to show you. I want to help and teach what the Bible says of the gospel. That's why we have elders and pastors that are around here. We want to help. We want to direct and show you. If you follow Christ faithfully all your life, my encouragement to you this morning is to, faith, to faithfully follow him more closely, to, to worship him more joyfully, to serve him more completely. You know, our job as believers, all of our jobs, is to call others to Christ. Just like we read and studied this morning with John the Baptist and Andrew and, and Philip, with it, to call others. John Calvin wrote in his commentary that Andrew immediately brings his brother, expresses the nature of faith, which is not keep the light hidden within or quench it, but rather spreads it in every direction. Andrew has scarcely one spark, and yet by it he enlightens his brother. Woe to our apathy if we do not try to make other partakers of the same grace. Woe to us if we just hold on to this gospel. Remember that someone told you, someone shared the gospel with you. Who is it thou that you could share it with? that you could say, hey, come and see. I want you to come and hear about Jesus. It's our job to go and tell. And I don't want us to hold and contain it in. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to seek and to find, to bring other people to the understanding of Jesus Christ and their need for a savior. I'm really excited about this study. I've enjoyed so far Gospel of John. And next week, we're going to look at all of chapter two. We're going to dive in and see there's some significant things that happen in chapter, chapter two. So my encouragement to you this week is to read John chapter two. Read it multiple times. Come ready. Come ready to engage of what, what we go through here. Be ready to study and to talk through. And I pray that the gospel is, is on the surface of all that happens in your house this week, that you're talking about it. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to, to look at your word. I thank you for the challenge it is this morning, the challenges upon my soul to, to recognize that sometimes we're just so timid. We're just drawn to ourselves, God, and help us to not be so self-focused this week. Help us to look for opportunities to, 
to share with others the hope that we have. Help us to to be bold, even as Kimball was with with D.L. Moody. I pray that you would lay people upon our hearts, that that would dwell in our minds, their people that we need to share the gospel with, that we need to ask these questions. Give us direction. I pray as we're memorizing your word this year that you would bring those verses to our memory as we're sharing the gospel, as we're sharing our testimony, as we're sharing the hope that we have. Father, help us to be faithful this week. Father, I pray for the parents in this room. I pray for the moms that stay home with their kids. What an amazing group of people who live selflessly to give to their kids. I pray that you give them grace this week and strength. I pray as they raise their kids, as, they, as we see discipleship happening right in front of our eyes, that we would encourage them. Pray that the gospel would flow in their conversations as they're, as they're leading and guiding and teaching their kids, that you would just help them. Pray for fathers too, as they come home for work or whatever their aspect is, that they would step in and help and uh, team up with, with mom there to do this work. I pray for the others in our church, the grandparents that have access to their kids, their grandkids during the week. I pray for those that leave and, and work with pagans throughout the week, people that deny you, deny that you exist, that they say boldly and unashamed that they don't care about you. Father, help us to have grace and love and compassion with them. Help us, remind us that we were once them, that we, we denied you, we rejected you. Help us to show love to them. Give us courage. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.